0: Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 35 and we have Scott Ferguson joining the show. Scott grew up in South Australia before heading up to Darwin to join corporate bookmaker Darwin Allsports. Since then, Scott has travelled around the world working in betting, betting education, betting exchanges at the Horse Racing Betters Forum and Consulting. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code B-O-B-POD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Scott Ferguson. Today, I'm joined by Scott Ferguson. Scott, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Jack. So Scott, where did you grow
1: up? I uh, grew up in country South Australia, a place called Mount Gambier, which is halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide, and in racing circles, most famous for having a, uh, a horse track with a uh, dog leg in the straight, which is very rare in Australia.
0: And did you, you spent your childhood in Australia? I know you're not there now, but um, are you you call Australia home?
1: No, I still call Australia home. I've been, been in the UK for ooh, about 13 years now, but uh, no, I still call Australia home.
0: So how did you get involved in betting and and racing, I would imagine? Did it start younger or did you sort of develop into it in your teenage years? Take us through your sort of evolution.
1: Uh, It started pretty young. Actually, my first memory is uh, being taken to the doctor at Warnwood Racecourse for running around barefoot and getting a splinter in my foot um, when I must have been three or four or something like that. Uh, so it's yeah, in, the, in the family for a long way, but just uh, actually my mum's side, uh, my mother and my grandmother were just hobby punters, really, and sort of got, got me from there.
0: So were you primarily horse racing back in your Mount Gambier days?
1: Yeah, well, back in those days, sports didn't exist in Australia, really, until about 1990, so when I was, I was 20, so it was very much uh, sort of thoroughbreds and, and harness racing.
0: And how did you get started working in, in betting? I know a lot of people are involved sort of on weekends or they have a casual bet here and there. What prompted you to get involved in the industry and how did it all get started for you?
1: Well, I, I spent quite a few years at uni sort of, um, well, bumping around and not really knowing what I wanted to do. And then uh, came to the end of a um, well, sports administration course. I was going to get into event management. And then I saw a, an ad on the back of the uh, the sportsman for uh, a job at Mark Reeds uh, up, in, up in Darwin, International All Sports turns out that that was basically the only way they could advertise at the time if they advertised a job um they could advertise in the in national papers um but they they said you know come on up uh, we'll give you a two-week trial which i'm sure are probably uh, probably against some sort of labor laws these days but you know, <laughs> basically you back yourself and go up and um you know within a couple within within a week they'd sort of hired me and thought uh, away we went so i was up there up there for a couple of years and uh, that started my career in the industry
0: so most people would know IS and they're probably aware of Mark Reed. Take us through what you did in your sort of starting out there after your two weeks. That sounds like your two weeks went well enough and you stuck around.
1: Yeah, so I walked in there. Um, it was a straight a 98. I remember watching, um, it was the William Reed, I think it might have been the first one or the very second, one of the very early ones at um, Mooney Valley under lights when I was there. And um, yeah, so sports and sort of racing and they, they give you a grounding and everything Um and basically take right this is what you I know you've learned plenty of stuff in the past but well we want you to do it this way and you basically start on uh western australian racing which was fantastic it's a very small pool um you've got you know two tracks well basically uh, you know dry tracks all season uh very few horses travel across and if they do it's usually one way um and a small pool of horses to work from easy to do the tapes that sort of thing and you just learn all the uh, all the you know, techniques they had of how to read race all the all the data they had in their in their database, which was you know, pretty revolutionary at the time this is going back twenty years um, now it 's fairly fairly sort of commonplace they um, go from there it was a you know, fantastic sort of grounding and you know, from there you sort of saw you, know, you also took bets as well so you weren 't just a um, uh, you know, a race reader you 'd also uh trade the markets and, and take calls on a saturday when it was quite a small operation mm-hmm. um and you'd soon learn what not to do from losing punters and you'd um get a fair fair idea about what the winning punters were doing as well you would basically track them um not so much to limit them but just to learn what they were doing so right this guy's got a a very good strike rate connected to this stable and he, he only backs you know, favorites at certain times or or things like that and you you focused on habits of, of winning and losing losing punters and that that sharpened your mind up um, very quickly
0: so how did you do that back then? Was it just you know in your head and, and using sort of gut understanding of what was going on, or did you monitor track and profile even back then?
1: It was a little bit of profiling it's nothing like what what operators do these days and and shut you out very quickly but it was um, you know, in that in those days it was very much. We'll, we'll lay bets. We'll, you know, um, unless it's a, a huge amount, um, no, we'll take them on. And and if it was a good client, you'd you'd take the you take the bet and you'd, you'd pass other the money on. There was there's huge amounts of bet back um, betting back going those days um, around bookmakers. It doesn't seem to be the done thing anymore, but um, uh, you'd know that you know, such and such was connected to a stable, or they, you know, and if if you did, um, it was. You know, Nowadays, you're talking about Melbourne racing, Melbourne Sydney racing. They've got prices out on a Wednesday night or Thursday morning. These days, the only price you had um, back in 98, 99 were, you know, they were opening up Saturday morning. So um, you had them on a piece of paper. You might have just started trickling on the internet. And if you knew someone was um, connected to a stable, you might give them you know, five to one instead of nine to two or fours and just try and sort of uh, throw them a bone and see if you could take a tip. Okay.
0: And what were some of those revolutionary techniques, just for sort of history's sake, that you were using way back then that are probably commonplace now?
1: Um, Mark's big thing was just the the database they'd come up with. It was just a, um, you know, they put so much work into it. And back in the days where it was a a big slog rather than uh, the systems and coding with R and all things you can do now. But it was just being able to align form from different states and different levels of races I remember one um, one year we had the Darwin Cup up there, and for the for Darwin uh, Cup Carnival we have horses coming from from Perth, from Adelaide, from you know, Melbourne, from Brisbane, and from every provincial and you know, outback venue in between. So the four mines are just all over the place, and this system basically gave us markets that were just nothing like what the the guys on the track in Darwin were doing, and um, it was a, it was rather profitable for the guys that were uh, punting on them.
0: And what about back in those days, were employees of uh, race and sports books allowed to to bet themselves? Was it something that was frowned upon or was it something that was positive to be able to, you know, get on the other side of the counter essentially and learn some things from the betting side? How was that back then? I know there was probably regulations or even laws about it, but what about the actual uh, happenings back then?
1: This was Northern Territory. The laws, uh, no, 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 nothing back those days. Um, The... can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, we'll pay you this. Mm-hmm. No, it's not very much, but if you're not not making at least that much on the side as punting, you shouldn't be working this job.
0: Okay, interesting. And what sort of people were they looking for? Did they just anyone who was happy to go up there for a couple of weeks, they were willing to give them a shot? Or was it, I know you mentioned university, did some of that background assist in, in getting involved in those days?
1: It was more, um, no, they liked to have someone with a degree, but it was more the fact you'd be dedicated for that amount of time. Um, whether you did an arts degree and you, know, you were dedicated, you were destined for McDonald's, or it was a, um, a high-tech sort of computer science degree or something like that. At the time, it didn't really matter. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure it's much more sophisticated these days. And you're looking at people want you know, economics degrees and and things in data science and stuff like that. But back then, it was um, they would prefer you were fairly raw, so they could train you your own way. You didn't come with your own set ways um, and things that they didn't rate. Um, from other books might have learned from the wrong people um, so it was very much of don't show us you've done something in the past that you're willing to learn and you can dedicate dedicated and we'll give you a go sounds
0: like it might have been a pretty good time up there with a lot of young people heading up north to the, the warm weathers and, and learning from scratch
1: oh the guys that I used to work with in those days are you know, geniuses there's guys working for Pinnacle is. Um, some of the senior traders at the, the tab. There's guys, you know, basically all over the world have been you know, one's um, one's trading director at William Hill these days. One has been one of the top guys there and has, has moved on. Um, other, you know, most of the big shops in the world have yeah. had someone from that group at, at um, international Law as well. It was a fantastic time that two years. It was just when it was breaking open, and Mark was um, very keen to bring in guys from the UK. Um, that came over with a little bit of experience, um, and you know, cracked the Asian sort of market. So we're dealing with you know, massive sort of money that probably doesn't get handled by um, corporate bookmakers these days. But just some some of the sharpest guys I've ever met, and you know, some of those guys are in Hong Kong or working in the Asian markets these days as well. It was a it was a brilliant time, and Mark is great to learn off and so were some of these guys I was work with at the time.
0: So how long did you spend there? What did you do after that?
1: Uh, two years. Um, two years living in living in Darwin. Uh, for me was enough. It's a um, <laughs> it's a funny place. Um, it's the second time round for the, uh, the what they call the build up before I guess in the wet season uh, does many people's head in. And uh, yeah, I'd had enough. Um, went to Singapore for about a year and a half. Um, working for basically a, a dot com on the other side of uh, basically uh, recommending sports betting. Yep. Uh, so Singapore and Malaysia. Um, then the dot com uh, boom went bust uh and came back to you came back to australia um worked briefly in tasmania for um the original Tatsbet, which uh was an interesting operation it was um heavily restricted by the you know the old directors directors of the of, uh, tatters who um basically said it's a deep end of a swimming pool we're gonna gonna ha- shackle you and you know handcuff you i'm gonna throw you in the deep end of the pool and try and swim you couldn't the only place in the world that Tattersalls brand was any good was Australia, yeah, we weren't allowed to take a bet from Australia um, due to some interstate license, uh, some law from about 1860 that no one had ever bothered about. But they were so frightened of losing their lotteries and pokies licenses that that was just a, it um, was never going to go anywhere no matter how good we were as traders yep. or what we did abroad. Um, so then that was ended about a year later um, and then travelled the world and ended up uh, joining Betfair for which lasted me about six years.
0: Oh, that's lawyers for you. But yeah. What about what about sports betting? How was it back then, even after your IS days? Was it still a minnow and, and sort of seen as second fiddle to racing?
1: It was very much second fiddle, but it was also something that was coming along because you know, having worked in – and while I was at, at Reeds, I sort of mixed between the racing floor and and, uh, and the sports floor. Um, it was very much seen as this will come on because if you try to do racing on you – know, racing just started – Going seven days, I think, at that stage. Um, and if you were the man looking after a particular state, well, you never had any rest. You know, you, These days, you probably have, if you're doing it properly, um, you probably have several people doing it because there's that many meetings going on. Uh, whereas sports, you can pick and choose.
0: Yeah, that's specialisation.
1: You can choose, you can even have your season and stuff like that, and you don't have to worry about, you know, if you're, if you're focusing on the NFL or you're focusing on the, the Premier League or the AFL, you don't have to worry about horses coming from interstate or and and have their preparations that aren't synchronised, whereas you know, if you worry about a team sport or they're all trying to do the same thing at the same time. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and toads, the Betfair exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly.
0: You moved out of the UK and started with Betfair. What was the... I guess, attitude back then to an exchange like Betfair. How early was it? What was some of the competition like with some of the other sort of established uh, bookmakers?
1: Oh, it was, it was very early days. I, um, I went traveling in Europe for a while and I, um, I'd been chatting to them for uh, probably about a year or so um, via email and there'd been a moratorium on um, expanding in Australia so they didn't, didn't want to do it at the moment. But I said, if you ever ever come to London, drop in. So I dropped in. It was a warm summer's day, which you know, must have got to about 31 for, for London. And I remember walking into their small office pre the Hammersmith days. And uh, you know, the, the lawyers were sitting there in a short T-shirt and his, his feet up on the desk. I thought, this is pretty cruisy. <laughs> um, and there was about – I think it was only about 30 in the office at that stage. Um, and they said, oh, you should meet the commercial director. He's, um, he's carrying his honeymoon. So anyway, I travelled around and a couple of months later I came back um, into London and – uh, met up with him and then yeah, basically said, so How soon can you start? We want to have get someone that uh, knows Australia and, um, and on board straight very soon. So let me see. You're going to pay me in pounds, you're going to sponsor me, uh, and fly me home for, for work. So it's, okay. When how soon do you want me to start? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I did that for a couple of years to and fro, um, UK to Australia. And then, then once BFA got serious about bringing in Australia, they, um, uh, they sent out basically the big guns, Ed Ray and Mark Davies, and that to Australia to um, try and get, to go through the proper process of getting a licence. And at that stage, um, particularly New South Wales Department of Racing and Gaming, we were getting very uh, tight on everything we possibly did in terms of marketing and promotion. So it's, it's like, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that. Find me something to do or, or I'll uh, take up an offer in the Caribbean. So I came to London in August, so just before the Athens Olympics, August four. Um, and those days were, you know, it was fairly sort of cavalier. Um, the you know, bookies, bookies in the UK hated it, um, but they just wouldn't shut up. And the more bookies moaned about it, the more punters loved it. And in the early days, Betfair generally was the punters' friend. Um, it's completely changed these days, but um, as, as basically they've you know, publicly listed and the share share market took over. Um, but those days, it was. It was fantastic you, you know anytime you spoke to punters they absolutely loved it uh bookies sort of hated it racing people weren't really sure some loved it some thought oh it's been stopping horses and blah 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 and all that sort of rhetoric that you know, could never have gone on in the past um despite uh <laughs> despite it just being a little bit more complicated in the past or shady um it was yeah it was fantastic it was um and and the reason i came to the uk was basically the market was much more open to it um you know the australian market's been deregulated since but back in those days it was uh, the advertising and that sort of thing um for a firm not that basically didn't have the retail monopolies were, were very closed um so over here it's much more open it's probably a little too open to be honest but um no, it's, it's great it, unfortunately that all that all changed a few years down the track when um Know, better floated uh, you know, became very uh, penny conscious. Brought in the premium charge and all the uh, all the gaming activities, which um, you know, the founder Bert Bert Blacker said he never wanted involved in it. Uh, and the the two founders aren't basically involved in the business anymore. And ultimately, I'm one of these people who works for a particular boss rather than a firm. Um, and they're long gone, and so am I. So back then, you were in the
0: education department. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so initially it was trying to you know, spread the word in Australia. I had um, some fun times uh travelling around Australia. I once got um brought in front of the stewards at Northam Racecourse in WA, which was a was a highlight. Um because one of the one of the old old bookies thought I was uh, ringing up and passing the passing the markets over, which was uh, <laughs> and it just basically showed how completely clueless some of these people were about how the how the exchange sort of worked. Um so was it part of advertising and marketing,
0: or was it something separate altogether? And it was a necessary component for an exchange that was probably relatively unique back then.
1: It was a bit of everything. It was, um, you know, a bit of an all rounder sort of in skills. So it was, it was getting out there and meeting punters. It was demonstrating it to finding sort of big, big punters and or significant punters and uh, and teaching them how it all works and why it was, why was a better deal for them. But it was, uh, you know, getting. Getting a nice few words in with a few, drinking with a few press guys and getting the odd uh, subtle sort of word in here and there where we can get away with it. Um, Couldn't legally advertise, but, um, you know, you you sort of plug, you know, throw a few caps around and uh, basically whatever you can get away with and try and, you know, try and subtly uh, expand the brand.
0: So why was teaching so important? Did, Did people not understand, you know, backing and laying and those type of things that are sort of more common now?
1: Not at all. Like if you if you walked on a racetrack track and you spoke to you know, people that um, you know, people that work, had worked in the game and or held a bag at some stage, then backing lane, fantastic is great. Um, but others have a real track or a real uh, real struggle. Well, it's you know, that's the price in front of you. I have to take it. Well, no, why do you have to take it? Or you know, if you don't like this favourite, why should you have to choose which one of the other nine in the whole, in the race to to back? So that's I developed that as as he went along, and eventually had had an education department with um, a handful of people behind me, underneath me, and um, had a great time running seminars up and down the country, and did a few in Australia. Even got to even got to a few places in Europe as well, as other territories wanted it. Um, Running seminars, uh, train the trainer courses, stuff like that. But um, I even had uh, the the guy who was uh, CTO at the time, David uh, Yu, who ended up becoming uh, the CEO for a while, um, he came to one of the staff nights one night and thought, well, this is no, sorry, he, some, of his, some of his staff had gone along and reported back via his, via his PA and said, this is good. I want you to do this for all my tech staff because, you know, techies, I like techies, will just do the code and they'll be great at it, but actually understanding what, uh, what they were doing it for would have no idea. And then suddenly I became sort of the link between the punters and the techies and and trained them what they were trying to do. And that sort of, you know, for a while there, um, improved the user friendliness and understanding why punters do certain things with the habits and why they're trying to lay the field and why they'd like scripts to be able to do this in a split second and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, the education part was you – know, I, I, like, I like sharing knowledge. I, you know, I, I coach junior sport. I've, you know, I've, um, when I was travelling Europe, I taught English for a little while. Um I like sharing knowledge and the education part of the betting and actually teaching people to know you don't have to take that price from a bookie or the tote. You can you can do this differently. You can uh, you can back and lay, you can you can trade in play, you can you can lock in a position. Uh if it's going the wrong way you can you can bail out uh and these sort of things and you know, seeing Seeing that change certain punters, particularly ones that had uh, loved the punt but just had no idea what they were doing, that um, you know, gives you sort a of nice sort of feeling and you actually get some results out of that.
0: So was that really the birth of being able to trade? I know obviously people had multiple bets and back and lay and all that sort of stuff in theory, but in reality was the start of Betfair and building that knowledge base, um, obviously now need other users and the network effect of having a lot of people betting into those markets was... Betfair in those days the start of sort of real trading as we know it now?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, They weren't the first. Um, No, they are the first one to get it right. I remember there being being a handful of them starting off 98, 99, and I looked at at a couple and we we couldn't understand how they'd work um, because the interfaces weren't right and the logic wasn't right. But then Betfair basically simplified the interface. They brought in things like a... um, and in play delay, so it wasn't just whoever's got the fastest feed yep. or the fastest broadband connection, particularly in those days when, you know, in that connection were fairly fairly dodgy um, and and highly variable. Uh, you know, once that once that came in all well, people at least had the perception of being an even even playing field. Now you're still gonna have uh, people that are on super fast connections versus versus slower and the and the pitches you know when you have you know, seven or eight seconds on on cable T V. Cable, satellite TV being behind, um, what people can see on the track, those sort of things. But at least if they've got the, you know, if things are brought out in front of them, uh, they can at least you know, see, watch the market and and see what's going on. But being under back and lay sort of, you know, sort of change, change the industry. And it's, for me, it's almost spoiled it because it's like it's now, all, I can't really bet with the bookmaker too often anymore. And even for one to, you know, it's, it's a struggle to get on.
0: Yeah, or you feel bad because you missed the price on Betfair compared to what you know. The other bookies yep. might have for you. Mm-hmm. So was it common for other bookmakers at all? And even now, I don't see the whole lot of having teaching and education or other content that can help punters. I know they, in theory, don't want to necessarily help punters win over a long period of time. But was that an unusual thing, even though Betfair kind of had to do it to get those people involved?
1: It was very unusual. You know, usually it's, you know, we used to say if a bookmaker's telling you to do something, you know, suggesting this to you, think about why. You know, ultimately, their profit is in your loss. Well well be fair you know they basically wanted to make money out of at your commission, so effectively you 're only paying commission if you 're winning um, and they just wanted to bring the, bring the two parties together, so that was what it was about now these days, Pinnacle don 't do a great job of their their content um, most bookies do a, put a lot of content up, not necessarily educational but certainly information Uh, but i think think pinnacle stuff and i know several guys who write for them um they they do a pretty good job of that but i think uh yeah betfair's more interested in in, um, interested in squeezing as much as they can out of out of punters these days in across all their um different products rethink the way you see sport action or play can be represented by a series of numbers. When you analyse this data, patterns begin to emerge. If you follow these patterns and develop systems, you can play the game within the game. Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly.
0: So I want to talk about the Horse Racing Better Forum. Tell us us what it is.
1: Okay, so uh, what are we, about two and a half years ago, um, the the horse racing betters forum was set up in the UK, um, set up for, under Nick Rust, who uh, from the BHA, who's, who's the chief executive. Um, at, to be at arm's length, it wasn't actually under them. It was just they said, right, let's let's get this going, and basically they wanted to recognise punters um, so that any you know, decisions they were making, so what's what's the Um, the problem there with is it with integrity is it with um, information is it the accuracy of data is it for what isn't being provided Um, what's the relationship with bookmakers like those sort of things Um, and yeah it's been um, it's been received pretty well I actually stood down um, in September last year um, a few other things on but um, it's it's still going Um, There's actually a an article in the Guardian um, this afternoon came out uh, guardian.co.uk um, talking about how this finally got representation with a parliamentary committee about minimum and bet laws over here. Um, when when the horse race the HBF did, um, did a servo punters, that was just the biggest thing by so far. Now. Yeah, um, by Frankel distance, basically. Um,
0: Black caviar distance for those in Australia.
1: Yeah, well, I just I just remember seeing seeing the one at Royal Ascot when uh, when, she, when she fell in. Well, yeah, um, that's true. So I lost that one? <laughs> um, but yeah, that one um, by by far and away, that was the main thing. That, uh, the success of the HBF was going to be judged on whether it was that. But along the way, um, being able to take some small wins, um, such as wind operations, now have to be declared as of uh, last week um accuracy of, of race distances um some of the tracks would be out by you no know, jumps jumps courses would sometimes be out by a furlong wow and not, think nothing of it and it's like what this is just ridiculous and some you no know, even some flat tracks out uh, by, by 50 meters 100 meters some of like that there was a brand new um all-weather track put in a couple of years ago at uh, newcastle and they had one of the well, the distance is out by a good 40 metres, I think over 1,400 metres, seven furlongs. How do you get that wrong on your first day? It's incredible. Just, um, just poor planning and, and just blatant disregard of punters, really. Yeah. Um, you know that. Um, so, yeah, there's small wins along the way um, getting there. The, you know, the just basically getting bookmakers to engage me very hard, um, but hopefully that's, that's coming along. It's not you – know, there are realists in there. Um, it's not going to be a Milton thing saying you must have the um, the rules like in Australia. It's not going to happen because basically the industry here doesn't have the isn't basically wearing the trousers like in Australia. It doesn't have as much power over bookmakers. Um, but hopefully something can come along, even if it's a minimum bet to to lose two hundred pounds or something like that. Just something to to um uh, you know it's a bit of a mockery at the moment, basically how much bookmakers can get away with. Um, it's just it's just gone a bit too far and they're not going to do it on their own unless they're forced to and bring it back to a you know, a decent balance, respect the fact that bookmakers have to make, it, make a living out of it, but also you know, stop worrying about the gaming machines and actually try and go back to bookmaking. You've got a license. You've been given the license to lay a book. So how about laying a book?
0: So what was the – is there an aim or a mission statement or is it very, very broad and it's you know just generally taking on punters' interests?
1: Basically, taking up punter's interests. It's not a. Um, it's not taking up disputes. That's there are plenty of arbitration services to do that. As to take on basically high level um, topics. So basically, whatever the punter wants to, to go for. So um, one that's come up has been um, the discrepancy between uh, pitcher feeds and certain uh, certain track has been uh, rumored to be delaying pitches um, leaving the track. Um, in order to well, in the, in their mind, in order to um, discourage um, fast uh, fast picture traders at the at the track, whether that's the actual reason for it is um, is questionable. But um, you know, that sort of thing, you know, there are people out there that make money off that, um, who basically want, want to trade uh, either from the track or from home. And the fact that uh, picture, uh, broadcast pitches are being delayed. Um, is an issue basically if there's any more than just technical reasons if there's any choice going involved um, i don't, i don't think that's particularly particularly fair particularly if it's if it's kept hush hush um, yeah things like um, you now we talked about data there bef- data there before with wind operations being declared um, with gelding operations i don't think we're, were declared a couple of years ago or at least not in the form guide probably um, accuracy of distances you know, just um, trying making bookmakers um, display terms or bets of terms and on on, on course there are uh, bookmakers basically have a freedom to bet to whatever terms they like or a little bit of freedom. Uh, there's they've been It's been a bit tightened up in recent years but uh, when I first came to the track in the UK it's like a guy's betting like a seventh for four placings or something like that in a, in a 24 horse, 25 horse race. It's like how can they honestly do that? Why aren't they, don't they have set terms? Um, there's a bit of a sort of market freedom in this this country, which uh, needs to be tightened up a little bit, I think, because I think bookmakers in this country, um, both corporate and uh, on track, have a bit of a, a, bit of a bad name. Um, it, it, it might be my Australian views coming into that and a bit biased because I've come from another side where it's all a bit more rigid, uh, almost nanny state from Australia. But I think um, they could do a bit more for their perception. So
0: I think, and maybe sadly, it seems like an uncommon concept to gather... I guess, punters and bettors' interest together. Was this based on another body around the world? Is there other bodies that are doing this? I know, you know, for instance, you're talking about some of the additional information. I think Hong Kong Jockey Club have the weight of the horse, for example, um, which I don't know how valuable that is, but I believe they offer that to everyone. Is that is there there something in Hong Kong that that has something similar, or was this a first of its kind?
1: Not that I'm aware of. Um, You know, there's been... Sorry, no. There was something... I think about 15 years ago, between, uh, no, probably 20 years ago, before the turn of the century. Um, but it was pretty small, and I don't think it had the official recognition. Um, but it okay. did, didn't last very long and died out. This one's actually you – know, Nick Russ sort of set it up uh, and was very keen to sort of get it going. they step out, they'd get um, uh, you know, someone from the BHA pop in occasionally when they're requesting information and wanted to understand sort of program scheduling and stuff like that. Um, but then they'd also have people from the Racecourse Association or someone from a bookmaker and, and those sort of things into. too. So, you know, please explain these sort of things. We have you know, punters, perce- punters perceiving this is happening. Is this correct? What can we do about it? How can we make it, make it clearer? Um, that sort of thing. There are, um, there's been talk about one happening in Australia, um, in various states in Australia. Um, I'm not aware of one getting off the ground. Uh, I know Richard Irvine is doing a great job there with um, getting the bet laws in place, but in terms of actual uh, committees or uh, groups to um, to uh, represent partners' rights, I'm not sh- not aware of any at the at the moment. Um, just one point there you said on horse weights, that was also something that came up, mm-hmm. um, and there's a valid reason why it's it's great in Hong Kong and it's almost impossible anywhere else because you need to, you need to do it at a certain time and consistency at a certain time before before the run on each oh, horse. I see. They have those and training facilities, right? For training facilities, it's very easy. When you have um, trainers spread out all over the country, it's you know the, the information, if you're doing it at the race course on the day, it's not really that useful. Um, ideally, you're doing it – no, you want the information to go to punters so they so they know. So ideally, you get it to uh, – if it's 24 hours beforehand or something like that, but they need to be at the same place. Then you need to have the, the scales – all over the place, it's it's very difficult. Uh, and Britain British racing doesn't have a huge amount of money to throw around. Now you look at the price money compared to Australia or Hong Kong. Um, so spending money there when it could be used elsewhere, is, it's, it's low on their priority list. So I think um, yeah, it's fantastic for Hong Kong uh, and those sort of places, but any, anywhere else that has a more um, uh, diverse, uh, diverse range of training centres, that sort of thing, I think would be, be very hard to implement.
0: So, is the idea that it's good for the punter, is good for all, or the industry itself, an oversimplification? I know obviously what's good for Jelko might not be good for your your spring carnival punter in Melbourne. So, yep. how do you balance all that from the forums' perspective? Or how did
1: you? It's 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 quite difficult. Um, you, know, you you speak to if you went to a betting shop um, in the UK and spoke to punters there who you know, probably represents. A good third of the of people who bet on horse racing in the, in the UK, not one of them would be worrying about having their accounts closed because they're not the people. These these are the people that sit in there, sitting there for hours a day, betting small amounts um, on anything um, that aren't. Aren't that educated, but that's the way that that's sort of the way they, they sort of spend their day, and that's you know, they love it. Um, but then you've got the higher end of the scale, um, your zelkos or or people who aspire to be, you think like to think they're smarter or aspire to be smarter, um, bringing in all these other other issues that want to be sophisticated, that want to bring in data sort of stuff. Um, you, know, you look at the response from uh, race trainers this week in the UK about wind operations. It's like they think all punters are idiots. Is saying, oh, you know, only two out of ten of these wind operations actually have any benefit. Blah blah blah. It's as if they think the people have just going to back them blindly.
0: Yeah.
1: So like, it's just another, da- it's just another data point, and you know, of a lot of them. And you, if you just bet on it blindly, you will lose. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. no one bets on, no one bets on blinker changes blindly or gilding operations blindly. You link it in with certain things if a certain trainer declares a wind operation on a horse has done done this and then resumes two months later in this type of race then that's the one you might back similarly blinkers you have them on certain uh, certain breeds at certain times are quite useful it's just another thing that goes in there but transparency is it's just so hard to get transparency out of out of um old school uh horsemen that sort of stuff but in in australia the it's very much a of the industry sort of controlling, sort of wearing the trousers. Uh, it's very much this is what's good, and you know everyone does their media interviews, and they're all very um, you know, promoting the industry, and they, they recognise that. Here, it's much much harder because you get a lot more private trainers and private jockey um, and retained jockeys who just basically work for one trainer, who they're not interested in the outside rides or outside, outside horses because they are paying um, basically on the salary of someone incredibly rich. Yeah. Um, uh, so therefore, they feel you know, they have no; their job is not to, not to say anything, and um, I think it's a shame.
0: So, has it been successful, or is it successful enough for other jurisdictions perhaps to get on board, have something similar? Um, what's the progression looking like for the next couple of years? Do you think?
1: It's, it's getting there. It's a lot of these things take time. Um, you know, it's it's will sound great to the to the man in the street uh, who's been whinging about minimum bet laws and that sort of stuff. These things take time. Um, you know, as a as a racing authority to get data change and that sort of stuff well you need you know, to get the likes of a wind operation into into databases there they need to change things both in the data side also change the mindset of the the trainer so that's you know, something that was raised 18, 18 months ago two years ago um and, and similar so minimum bet laws or anything that involves government and stuff like that those the machinations for that take ages yeah um yeah. so you know there are a lot of things that take take time you can't these things can't be judged over over six months or 12 months and um and go the, the the guys that are still there uh have done a you and know, and the, and the few of us who uh stepped down have done a great job um and i hope it continues that way because um i think the whether they achieve anything major or not i think it's irrelevant i think it's at the very least punters need to be represented and when decisions are being made by the bha and um and even bookmaking stuff like that, or needs, needs some sort of representation to at least say, hey, just hang on a sec, just make sure you think about us, um, because there's IBAS there, which is a independent betting arbitration service links what they stand for, um, and the gambling commission, they have their roles, um, and there's a there's a gap basically uh, in between. I think uh, the the HBF uh, does a is doing a good job and, and needs to continue.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit and ask about sort of tech and product. Is there anything you've seen that you're bullish on for racing that sort of can help combat the threat of sports betting? I know we've seen things like cash out or crazy bonus bets and and silly markets that they're throwing out there, but anything sort of to help the longevity of racing that you've seen? What's sort of the the feeling over there in the UK about the the future of horse racing? Uh,
1: Well, the big one here for the UK is um, what's going to happen with the tote. Um, So the tote was sold off... Uh, about, what are we, five years ago um, to Fred Fred Doan um, who basically the the tote came with a lot of shops, real estate and he basically saw it for the real estate rather than the actual tote product Um, his exclusivity over that product ends uh, middle of this year, in July Um, so now the racing industry has basically stepped up to create their own tote in competition that's uh, and now there's going to be a turf war over who has the rights in the shops, who has the rights on the tracks and online and blah, 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 and there's going to be competing totes. Um, totes are like exchanges. You need one. Any more than one is too many. Um, it will just basically cut each other's throats on liquidity and it won't, it'll struggle. Um, but hope you know, it'll take a while to get, that, get, to, get to that state. Um, what has happened with the... Um, with the tote back, sorry, with the racing back one, is that virtually all the courses, bar about three, three or four, um, have gone with the racing one. So on on course, it'll go that way. Um, what they've also done is teamed up with Colossus Bets, and Colossus Bets is the operation which is backed by uh, Bernard Marantelli, uh, and an Aussie sort of uh, very very shrewd operator has uh, made his money out of punting, um, and they basically have. Colossus bets mostly bets at the moment mostly those things on football and, and sport um, where you can have syndicates and you know, you're basically trying to pick pick a dozen sort of things uh, a dozen sort of results and go for a you know, three million or five million sort of pound jackpot. Okay. But there's you can, but you can always cash out. Um, so if you've got the first two legs in and so oh you know, you'll get you get a text message if you've switched your notifications on and said right your twenty pound ticket is now worth seventy five pounds. For 100%, would you like to cash some of it out? And you can, you know, you can take 5%, 10%, 50, 90%, mm-hmm. the whole lot.
0: Is it fair uh, Fair
1: margins in that or not? Um, well, you won't be doing it to give away, but I think there'll be decent sort of margins. Okay. And I think I, you know, my assumption is that the plan with that is if you can allow cash outs on those huge jackpots, the only people who aren't going to take it if they get down to the very final leg are the ones that are already that are loaded. Yeah. So if you have got a punter who's, you know, a fifty pun a fifty pound punter or smaller and he's suddenly got a chance to win a couple of million and he's got one game left on the Monday night, it's so, like that two million pound jackpot's not going to go off. Yeah. Because he's got to have cashed a fair chunk of that out. Um and I think that's that's the business model. It makes perfect sense. Um yeah, you know, I think cash outs in general I think is tightening up. Um yeah, some of the uh, margins that early were um were quite ridiculous. Um but i think you know as it comes more competitive as more operators sort of um, pl- tweak their algorithms and try to be more competitive then they get tighter um but they've got a, got a you've got a niche there which hopefully builds on racing i think it's pretty exciting um you know some of the people listening to this will know that when the scoop six jackpot gets massive over here i run a syndicate basically and, um you know it gets into the millions and i've had uh, over a hundred sort of people joining that for as little as little as twenty quid and some up to you know, some up to a thousand sort of chipping into that. Uh, never had the success of winning it, but um, a syndicate and great fun.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, a lot of admin work though, which is really painful. But um, unfortunately, the tote has got to a state where I don't think I've had one of those for eighteen months now. Twelve or eighteen months. Um, it's just dropped down. Uh, it's really sad. The scoop six is a great product, um, but unfortunately the uh, just the way the totes currently operated isn't isn't working um but when colossus comes in and i think they're just running the, the tote pool here for the exotics and i think they're doing the win and play stuff um but for the exotics they're gonna i think they'll spice it up um they'll have a budget they'll have access to punters. um yeah i think they'll i think they'll, they can do quite a bit with it i think they're looking to get um the international co-mingling and, and that sort of thing in there if they can get some serious money in there um Especially on those big, big parts, it's like oh, okay, we've got an exciting product again.
0: Interesting, interesting. Do you have any advice for younger punters or betters out there who want to get involved in racing or bookmaking or things like that? Obviously, you've had your path, and we went through a little bit earlier. Is it easier these days with you know so much more information? If you're smart and shrewd enough, you can put it all together yourself, or is it harder because there is so much more out there and potentially more competition?
1: Oh, um, double-edged sword, that one. Um, there's so much information out there. There's so many things that you can basically pick on virtually anything and, and, and specialize in it. Um, but for the main part, most of these sports are gonna be all the pricing and that is gonna come from basically modeling, data modeling, um, because the information is out there. So it works both ways. The more obscure, you can, the simpler and more obscure events you can find, um, the better it is to work on because there's more of a chance of an edge. If you're betting on the Premier League, the NFL, the AFL, the NRL, that sort of stuff, or, or Group 1 racing, it is extremely hard to find an edge. The the information is all public. Yeah. It's all been crunched in databases by, by numerous sources many, many times. If you're betting on obscure stuff, um, and I'll, thro- I'll pull one out here. The Winter Olympics is coming up. Mm-hmm. There's some of these events no one ever prices up during the year apart from every four years. And I'm talking about these new funky X game sports such as slope style and ski cross and snowboard and stuff like that, half pipe, et cetera. I don't have a clue. Some of the data's out there, but the punt, this it's not something ever, anyone ever bets on in between. You can bet on alpine stuff, you can bet on biathlon, which is a sport I love. It's great for in play training, by the way, and, and Nordic, Nordic skiing. Yep. But in terms of these X game things, if you go out and do your homework, You've got no idea how to pull a price together. I've done it. You could possibly cash in here. Um, you know, bear in mind you're not going to make millions out of it because bookies aren't going to let you on for too much. Um, but that sort of thing is a little fun because it's obscure um, and you're not going to get beaten by a model because there is no model. Every everything else is is just crunched to the nth degree. It's extremely hard to get known out of out of sports these days.
0: Yeah, no, definitely Ray. I live in the US, and I see the drafts, the NBA and NFL drafts. Get covered to death. No one in the U.S. is necessarily allowed to bet outside of Nevada. So when you have those offshores putting up prices again, it's no one's really necessarily spending time to go through it. And obviously, you're not going to get too high stakes down or anything like that. But it's the same sort of thing. That specialization or niche areas can be lucrative.
1: Yeah. And at the the same time, um, story from a few pros, some of the extremely big events, such as the Super Bowl or a World Cup final, they can actually go the other way because there's so much public money in there, they can actually skew the line. Yep. Um, but that's at the very, very top of things. Um, in, in, in between, it's, it's quite hard. But um, you know, there's data out there. Um, pick something small. Um, I, I said when I started with Mark Reed, started on Western Australian Racing, because it was a very small pool of horses, two meetings per week that, that, they were worth, that were worth worrying about, and you can go through the form, you had time to do it. Now there's so much going on, um, that it is hard to do, or at least hard to do, to find an edge. Um, so pick pick a niche. Um, you now, if, if it's an Australian, I'd suggest doing something like Western Australian racing, doing Tasmanian racing, or Tasmanian harness, or something like that. A, a select, a small pool that you can you can work in, and, and not be worried about sort of a too many um, what they call shippers in in US racing, uh, travellers to to muddy the waters, um, or a small league of, of football or basketball or something like that. But find find the data for play with it. Um, test some some models, start small with your betting um, and then go from there but always remember if if something looks too good to be true, it probably is you're probably probably missing something and there'll be someone out there waiting to take advantage as soon as you uh, open your purse strings
0: So what about content in the betting world? What do you read or consume day to day or weekly, monthly, that type of thing um, for those out there who want to get an insight into what you sort of tap into?
1: Oh, there's so, so much out there these days. Um it's it really depends what what following at the time. Um these days I'm sort of got so, I've got so much stuff going on that my my punting interests are, are almost sort of seasonal. I'll tap into sort of big events and um and not much else, and it's more for an interest. Um but I'll you know when I when I have the time I'll seriously set myself down and 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 dig in dig in deeply, but um for the serious serious part but those opportunities aren't as aren't as um common as they used to be um what do i read good question um i i'm very much of do my do my own thing i like to read a bit sort of here and there but i i only use it to sort of supplement my own my own research yeah um you know so for golf for example i might read sort of ben coley stuff in the uk um so not uh, also helps the fact that I'm in a fantasy competition, a one and done golf competition with him. Um, but so on there uh, for tennis stuff, I don't really read much at all anymore. Um, just have a sort of database that um, crunch, crunches numbers there. Um, it's it's really sporadic, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's, there's that much out there, and I've. Probably far too many people I follow on on Twitter. Just feeds coming through, so I might occasionally sort of find find something and, and read it. Um, but in terms of in terms of regularly, it's not something I even swear by at the moment.
0: Okay, no, that's fine. No, I was just curious, because inca- a lot of people say they they've switched over and they just read you know behavioral cognitive books and things like that or not specific betting content and they're more into just other areas uh. where they can add on to that
1: ah now in terms of in terms of books yes i, I was thinking more in terms of uh, real-time content in terms of books very much doing um plenty of sort of reading there um i have to put my ipad out to go through some of these books i've read so um it's trading bases by joe peter i yep. think i really enjoyed uh, um, yeah daniel kahneman's thinking fast and slow but that's been on the list for a while which i haven't actually got to i love michael lewis and malcolm gladwell stuff more of More general sort of and behavioral economics and science that sort of stuff Uh, what I learned losing a million dollars Brendan Moynihan more about more about share trading than anything Um, but about just losing your head and being in the wrong mindset also that's also a good book about recognizing when things change one thing speaking to pros and you've had several on, on on here in in previous podcasts you need to realize that what you were doing last year Two years ago, ten years ago, will not make you money for much longer. If it still is, things change. People catch up. If there's an edge in the market, someone else will find it and crush it to death. And market markets change, um, particularly when you start getting into markets where people in exchanges and that where people can actually start playing with the markets to to trick it and move it around. Uh, Elihu uh, Feistel, little Conquering Risk, um, Nassim Taleb, Black Swan, some of those. Yeah, uh, those are sort the of ones. Fairly fairly sort of general ones, I think probably the um, how what a learned losing a million dollars probably one that I haven't heard on many lists before
0: yeah definitely and those starting out as well who haven't sort of built up a bank of those type of books it's a pretty good list definitely uh, before I let you go Scott and no, I really appreciate your time Twitter address do you mind if people reach out questions I'm sure the the betting forum stuff might be interesting for those uh, around the world. Absolutely,
1: Uh, at Boris Ranting, uh, which comes from... I used to play a lot of tennis, and I I did once have hair. It was red. Um, So that's where Boris comes from, and uh, rant a lot. So Boris Ranting on on Twitter.
0: Beautiful. Scott, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, and all the best for
1: 2018. Thanks very much, Jake. It's been a pleasure. Residents of Australia can join
0: Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au. And please support this podcast by using promo code B O B Pod. Gamble responsibly.